forgave you. You may be seated. What a passage of scripture this morning. The gospel in life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the challenge of the truth that the gospel transforms our hearts and our minds to live for Christ. Father, we know that we are unworthy to be saved and that you offer your grace and your mercy through Christ. And Father, when we take our time to sit and to hear the word of God, Father, may you speak to our hearts and our minds through the spirit that is at work within us, that you would convict, that you would restore, that you would challenge. us where we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I entitled the uh, name of this sermon, Looking Into the Mirror. And I I entitled this um, because I think that it describes what Paul is trying to say here. When you look into a mirror... What do you see? What do you see? You've probably never thought much about it, but are you a person that gets up, uh, goes directly to the coffee, reads, prays, showers, puts on some nice clothes, and then says, hey, I'm ready to look into the mirror? Or are you the person that rolls out of bed, drools still coming out of his left cheek, frizzed and frazzled, going straight to the mirror, and saying, what do I have to work with today, right? I don't know. Who, who, who are you, right? Which one is right? Which one is wrong? Well, that's uh, your question. Neither one is right. Neither one is wrong. It's not about how you look at yourself in the mirror. But what do you see? I'm not talking about the outside of what you see not being fit or acne free or receding hairline or not. We're talking about your heart. When you see yourself, what do you see on the inside? Who are you? You see, Paul has spent the first three chapters telling Christians in Ephesus and telling us who we are. You were chosen before the foundation of the world. You have received forgiveness of sins. You have received redemption through the blood of Christ. You are someone who has been saved. You are someone who has been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit is now at work in your inner being. You were dead and God made you alive. You were a follower of Satan, but in God's mercy, he loved you. Even when you were still a sinner, God, by his grace, saved you. Remember, at one time you were separated from Christ. One time you were Gentiles in the flesh, strangers to the covenant promise, having no hope without God, but now you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
He's broken down the wall of hostility, and now you are called saints, members of the household of God, the church. You are considered holy and righteous in God's sight, not because you are good, but because of God's grace. Do you see that when you look in the mirror? Who are you, church? In the previous section, in this section, he reminds us who we're not. We're not people walking in the dark, walking around with hard hearts, callous, just practicing every kind of impurity. No, we are new creations created in Christ for good works. God is transforming us through the power of the gospel. And just think of it. You see the mirror next to you. And you see yourself and you see a sinner saved by grace. God granting us righteousness and holiness. And then it comes to verse 25 and he takes the mirror away. And you're looking at the person next to you. You're looking at the person at the grocery store. You're looking at your neighbor. You're looking at your coworker. You're looking at other people. What do you see? Hopefully, you see the grace that God has given you, the transformational work and the power of God in your life and granting you salvation, and you offer that grace to other people. The last line in verse 32, as David read earlier, sums it up. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You see, when you see people in light of the gospel of grace that God has given to you, it allows you to look at others. And offer them grace as God has given grace to you. Part of putting on the new self is not just about your relationship with God, but also your relationship with other people. Our hearts, as we'll see in this passage this morning, are transformed from unrighteous anger to righteous anger from stealing to a giver, from using words for harm to using our words to build up, from someone who is unforgiving to someone who is forgiving, all because of the knowledge of Christ and the love that he has for us, and we understand our grace that God has given to us, and we extend that grace to one another. We look in the mirror Verse 25, therefore having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. This is our first point this morning, and it is the church speaks the truth in love. The church speaks truth. And it does so in love. It's interesting how he relates this falsehood to the old self, 
Look again at verse 20 and 21. We talked about this last week. And then he says this, But that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. That is the truth. Christ has, has conquered death. He has conquered sin. He has given you the Holy Spirit to also transform your life. It's interesting here how he goes all the way back to verse 14 and 15 of chapter 4 as well. Look at that with me real quick. Chapter 4, verse 14. So that we may no longer be children Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. The truth that is found in Jesus, the truth that is against the false teaching, the truth in love. There's an element here that's not taught within the church very much because it's difficult, it's hard, it's not easy. Speaking the truth in love entails gentle correction. That's what he's talking about, his false teaching up in, in 14 and 15. But the gentle correction, Galatians 6.1, he talks about this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. You see, this is frowned upon in our culture today. You're going to tell me what to do. You have the right you don't have a right to ask me hard questions. It's none ya, none ya business, right? I mean, that's what you hear. I mean, if you're a parent and teenager, you hear that. It's nunya, right? And yet, we say all the time that the church exists for the glory of God. So when we, he says, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor... We are all members one of another. He is saying we are all in this together. The body of Christ building itself up in love. And if there is a problem, we need to speak the truth in love. Always leading in grace, but always speaking the truth. And what is the truth? The truth is Christ. The spirit of truth is the Holy Spirit. The word of God is truth. The Bible tells us all of those things. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the truth found in this context of this passage is that you shouldn't live like an unbeliever. The truth is we are to grow up into Christ. 
And he begins this section saying, put off the old self and to put on the new self. But he continues to detail down of what that looks like. In chapter 5, verse 25, the truth is, husbands, we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. The truth is, in, in, in chapter 5, verse 33, wives, we should respect our husbands. The truth is, in chapter 6, verse 1, children, we ought to obey our parents. In chapter 5, 18, we ought to not fill ourselves with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. The truth is, 521, we ought to submit ourselves to one another out of reference for Christ. In 53, the truth is, sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you, church. Speaking the truth in love builds up the body of Christ. Let me give you an example of how this works in community, Christ-centered community with one another. It's called confession of sin. Don't keeping, not keeping your sin hidden. Not living a lie. Exposing that which is dark in the dark places of your heart and saying, I'm struggling with men and women that you trust, that you're doing life with, and saying, I need help. You see, the gospel doesn't say project yourself as good as you possibly can, and then, only God, and then God will clean you up. No, Romans 5, 8 says this, but God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So church, look in the mirror. Do you have secret sins that eat away at your soul, that keep you from becoming who God has designed for you to be? Why does a person lie? We're talking about speaking the truth and all falsehood here. Why does a person lie? To project himself better than he actually is. That's why a person lies. And yet as believers, we look in the mirror and we see we are sinners saved by grace and declared righteous by Christ himself. Why do we need to project ourselves better than the righteousness of Christ? We need to speak the truth in love to one another. Verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. This is our second point this morning. The church looks to the interest of others. The church looks to the interest of others. All of these issues here, Paul will talk about truth, 
anger, stealing, corrupting talk, unforgiveness. What do they all have to deal with? They all have to deal with relationships with people. Often, when we struggle in relationships, it is due to the fact that we are struggling in our relationship to God and understanding who we are and understanding and knowledge of Christ and what he did for us upon the cross. Because when we see ourselves in light of the gospel of grace, we cannot help but find grace for others. Philippians 2 talks about the mind of Christ. And when he's talking about this mind of Christ, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Then he goes on to declare the mind of Christ, which Christ came to be a servant, and then he came to die on the cross, and then he came to take your place. You see, the gospel allows us to look at relationships through a different lens. The first issue Paul addresses here as looking to the interest of others is anger. Anger we we probably have some um, understanding of as we are in in this world in which we live. Anger, as we know, can be very destructive to any relationship and one difficult to deal with in our hearts. I heard about an elderly couple who were talking one evening about the way they get over their fights. The wife, in a moment of real humble candor, said, Honey, I'm so sorry I let my anger out at you so often. How do you manage to stay so calm? Which the husband replied, Oh, it's simple. I always go and clean the toilet when that happens. And that helps, the wife asked. Oh, yes, said the husband, because I'm using your toothbrush. (laughs) Got it. But the text says, be angry. Just making sure you're awake this morning. Be angry, right? That's what the text says. An imperative. When's the last time you as a parent told your child, be angry, right? Be angry. God's telling you, be angry. It's an imperative. It's a command. Be angry. Wow. You see, the Buddhists teach annihilation of desire. But anger is a necessary part of love. Why is that? Because it's a violent, destructive energy released against something that you love. So he says, be angry and do not sin. It's it's interesting because looking back at the life of Jesus, Jesus was angry. Mark 3 tells us he healed a man on the Sabbath. He healed his, his, his withered hands, and the Pharisees are waiting to catch him, breaking the law, yet Jesus becomes angry. Why? Because they would rather promote their religious customs than love a fellow human being. 
We all know about Jesus in Matthew 21 where they've set up a market and money changers in the place where outsiders were to come into the temple, the court of Gentiles. We've talked about this earlier in Ephesians. Jesus comes and he flips the tables of the money changers and drives out people with whips. Jesus makes whips. You probably shouldn't do that, just FYI. We don't have the control or the clarity that Jesus had. But Jesus had a righteous anger. An anger that was directed towards injustice, towards not glorifying God. But there's another type of anger, an anger that leads to sin. Paul says, be angry and do not sin. It comes from loving the wrong things. If a righteous anger is because we love God and we want to see him glorified and we become angry at injustice and things that are outside of God's design, an ungodly anger is a result of loving the wrong things. If you love, if your love is messed up, then what you're angry about is probably going to become messed up too. St. Augustine said this, the root of our sinfulness is disordered loves. We love the wrong things or love them out of proportion. Think about this. It's not wrong to, to value your name. It's not wrong to value your reputation. But if you love those things too much, you will get an inordinately angry whenever your ego is insulted. What about your child? What causes your anger in your children? Is it because of the harm that they are inflicting on themselves by their choices to rebel against God? Or are they simply inconveniencing you or embarrassing you? Is your love self-centered or is it loving towards the Lord? Paul gives us a clue as how we know if it's righteous anger, if it's sinful anger. In verse 26, he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Why? Because self-centered anger broods and breeds until it controls our thoughts and emotions and our lives. We can't, as Elsa said, let it go, right? If it is righteous anger... We resign ourselves as judge of the universe and we leave it to the Lord. We go to sleep because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. We don't feed the injustice or the hurt by continuing to stew over it. When you're angry in love, you confront the person who's wronged you immediately. And then you commit the injustice to God and let him deal with it. This doesn't mean all your problems are solved, but you're having, not having to carry the burden of trying to settle the score. Verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. Guess what? If our anger becomes unchecked, we give the enemy an opportunity, a foothold. And anger turns into bitterness and a corrupted spirit. 
Romans 12, 17 tells it best. It says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We don't want the the enemy to have a foothold in our life. We forgive. We give those anger to the Lord. Verse 28 says this. We'll get to forgiveness here in a minute. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Historians tell us that stealing in the first century Asia Minor was typical Everyone was doing it. Paul tells us it's not okay for God's people who have been given grace to go and take something that is not theirs. Paul tells us to break free from these societal norms. If our first love is Christ, everything else flows from that. No matter what the society does, we look to what Christ desires. But it's not only that we don't lie, right? But we speak the truth. It's not only that we don't have sinful anger. It's to have a righteous anger. It's not that we just don't steal. It's that we give. And that's what he says here. It's not that we don't just talk corruptly. We build each other up with our words. You see, it's more than just not doing something. It's being filled with the Holy Spirit to do something. Understand that God has given us grace, therefore we act upon that grace with others. It's not just dads or fathers, young men, older men. It's not just not viewing things on the internet that you shouldn't. It's not just not trying to cheat on your taxes. It's not just not getting drunk. That's not the point. If it's the point, we've missed The gospel, the point is not just to not do these things, but to be filled with good to do the work in which God has called us to do. So what do you do? Men, you love your wife. What do you do? You give away your money instead of trying to cheat on your taxes. What do you do? Instead of getting drunk, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's love and action. As far as work, Piper says there are three options regarding work. You can either steal to get, you can work to get for yourself, or 
You can get, you can work to get in order to live. And that's what Paul is asking for us to do, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Zacchaeus is a good example of this, the transformative heart of a giver, God's transformation of a tax collector, a cheater. A tax collectors in this time would just take off the top for themselves. So if the tax was 8%, Zacchaeus would walk into a house and go, you owe me 14%. And he would take 6% for himself. He was a cheat. He was a liar. He was a thief. And Jesus goes, I want to come to your house. That's who I want to come to. I want to sit and I want to eat a meal with you. Jesus offers him grace. And as an encounter with Christ, God transforms his life right there. In Luke 19, 8, he says, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half my my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Half of everything I have, Lord, I'm going to give away transformation by the gospel. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, and that it may give grace to those who hear. The word corrupt, the corrupt talk is the word for rotten fruit or rotten fish. Corrupt, corrupt talk makes you sick. Examples of Corrupt talk are lying, abusive language, vulgar references, vicious or unkind words, gossip and slander. What's the opposite of that? Words that build up. Words that encourage. And guess what? We all need a lot of encouragement. I know that. You know that. We all need the body of Christ, to encourage us not only to live our life for the glory of God, but to get through the difficult times, to walk with someone through that, encouraging one another in love. If your disposition is cynical or critical, there's no warmth there's no encouragement, there's no love, you will not be a good leader in your job, your family, or your church, small group or large. You must encourage the body of Christ, those whom are saved by grace and offer that same grace to others. Give people hope. Give people hope. In Jesus. I always say this, and I mean it when I say it. There's nothing that God cannot restore. There's nothing that he cannot rebuild. There's nothing that he cannot make new. Let us view people in light of the gospel of grace. And so 
we see ourselves in that grace, we move the mirror to the side and we see that person and we're able to offer that grace to people. Verse 30, we're moving quickly through this. There's a lot to cover. But here you get to the end and this is maybe one of the most important sections. It says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. I want to key in right there, all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamors. Clamor meaning shouting, shouting at one another. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I summarize this, and there's a lot here. We're going to go through it, but I summarize this with our third point this morning. The church maintains the unity of the Spirit through, the, through gospel-centered forgiveness. The church maintains the unity of the Spirit through gospel-centered forgiveness. Go back, if you will, to chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Spirit has given the body of Christ, unity. But it has to be maintained through peace. Look what he says. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then he describes what must be put off or what grieves the Holy Spirit. He says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you, along with all malice. To see the grace that God has given you and to offer that grace to others is forgiveness. It's only when we recognize we are first sinners and only secondly sinned against do we have the opportunity to forgive. But sometimes we think to ourselves, we don't deserve to be sinned against. How dare someone sin against us? And then we look at the gospel. And we see ourselves and the sins against God that we have committed and God's unmerited favor upon our lives. God, Jesus gives us the ultimate example 
of restorative forgiveness, not only when he is crucified on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But Jesus said in Matthew 5, 39, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. People ask all the, all the time, what does this mean? If someone is physically attacking you, you just stand there and take it on the other side of your face? But for a Jew, slapping of the face is an insult. And the offer of the face is the offer of relationship. You see, the three choices that someone has when they are, when they are sinned against, or they are wronged, they're slapped in the face. What, what choices do they have? Number one, they can slap back. You're controlled by a fit of rage and you go back and you throw insults, you throw a punch, whatever it may be. Number two, you offer the same cheek. You, you, you continue to, to point to the cheek that has been slapped. You can continue to harbor a grudge and saying, this cheek, the one you slapped, look at what you did to me. You have become passive aggressive. You start to punish that person in small ways. Silent treatment, stop including them, and then all of a sudden you explode and you don't even want to be around them. Or, number three, which Jesus advocates for, you turn the other cheek. You offer a new side of the face you offer them relationship. It doesn't mean that you ignore the evil in them. Quite the contrary. Your cheek has been bruised. You're not hiding it. You're confronting the evil. But you're turning a new cheek and offering a path to restoration and reconciliation. You offer your brother who sins against you to go to them love and grace, bringing them back into fellowship with God and with you. By no means do I mean that if you're in an abusive relationship, you just keep going back. No, you offer, you initiate, you talk through the evil. Andy Stanley says whenever he speaks on this topic of forgiveness, usually there are three kinds of people who have the biggest problem with it. The first group believes that they ought to forgive but can't muster the courage to do it. The second group feels they would be letting the offender off the hook, which doesn't seem that right. But the third group claims to have gone through the motions of forgiveness, but memories keep coming back, leaving them to wonder if they've ever really forgiven at all. And the process in the Bible is very clear. If someone sins against you, you go to your brother. You tell them. And if they receive that, then you have won them over. They are back in fellowship with you and with the church and with God. But if you don't confront the issue and you harbor bitterness in your heart and your mind, you never turn the other cheek. You never turn the cheek and say, hey, this really hurt me. 
You never restore the relationship. Let me just say this very simply. The Bible is clear. We can forgive because Christ has forgiven us. Simple as that. God is the judge. We must continue to rest in the grace of God and offer that grace to others. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who, was, who wrote the book The Cost of Discipleship in World War II, where he spent time in a prison camp, he said he, said he sees this in the church often. The people are disgusted with the hypocrisy, the inconsistency, the sin within the body of Christ. He said, you know, there's a lot of people that are disgusted with that. And and Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, the good news is that these people are growing in Christ. They're, They're sensitive to sin. It bothers them. The bad news is that they're only at stage one of spiritual growth. Bonhoeffer says that stage two is that you become more disgusted at your own sin than everyone else's around you. That's stage two in the growth process of a believer. And stage three, the most important, he says now you're ready to re-enter the church, this time not as a self-righteous Pharisee, but as a broken sinner who's received grace and there's there in the church to help others find the same grace that you have found. Where are you at in spiritual growth? Do you feel like God has saved you and shown you grace so now you can share that grace with others? And when you look at a person, what do you see? What do you see in them? Do you see a sinner? Or do you see someone who God desperately wants to transform their life? You see people in light of the gospel of grace that God has shown to you that you're able to forgive that you're able to be angry but not sin, that you're able to give to them in need, that you're able to build them up in love. See, this is putting on the new self. Who you are created to be, the hands and feet of Christ himself, the body of Christ, the church, the bride of Christ, in which he is making holy and righteous and pure, and that he's purifying for himself a people that are zealous for good works. This is who we were created to be. The gospel changes our perspective of how we view people. Not only inside here, but outside here. Let us be a people that love as Christ loved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you. 
that you are growing us, that we are able to speak the truth to one another in love. Father, these things are heavy. They are difficult. They are hard. And yet we know that you have, you are working in our hearts and our minds. 